This morning reading comes from the book of 1 Peter. We'll be reading chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then... Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is God's word. Aidan, thanks for reading for us. Uh, good morning. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Simon, one of the ministers here. And I think, I think I'm already in the doghouse with my son. <laughs> this passage is hardly one to win friends and influence people. But it is God's word and not mine, so let's humble ourselves before what the Lord says as we uh, pray before I begin. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much that uh, each and every word of the Bible is trustworthy because it comes from you. Thank you that you speak to us some of these hard words, not because uh, you're a, a, a chiding disciplinarian, but that because you are a loving Father who seeks to Uh, guide us through life, not only for your glory, but for our good. And we pray that you'd help us to take this passage as you intend it, and to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a hard passage. It's not a passage that is hard necessarily in terms of understanding what it says, uh, but because what it does say pretty clearly uh, can make us feel very uncomfortable. As I've summarized it on your handouts, when God takes you through the fire, rejoice. Let's dive straight into verse 12, because that summarizes it for us. Uh, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. Literally, uh, the painful trial you are suffering... Uh, in the original language, it's the fiery ordeal that tests you. The fiery ordeal that tests you. So what is this fiery ordeal? Well, verse 14, being insulted because of the name of Christ. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. And verse 16, if you suffer as a Christian. Now, if you've been with us these last few weeks in 1 Peter, you'll have heard uh, a great deal of talk about that kind of thing already. Plenty of talk about how those trying to live the Christian life in this world will often be accused of doing wrong, will often be slandered, spoken against maliciously, insulted, verbally abused. Those are the kind of words that Peter has been using of the, uh, the language that is sometimes used of Christians by the world. And Peter's writing to an early church situation where all of those things were going on. And things were going to get worse. So there was verbal persecution in all sorts of ways. Uh, but shortly after his writing, uh, verbal persecution would become physical. People would be tortured. People would lose their lives just for being Christians. And that is the fiery ordeal he's speaking of, persecution for being a Christian. It's a fiery ordeal that tests you, he says, 
picking up on language that he used back in chapter 1 of a refining fire. Uh, God takes people through fire, metaphorically speaking, so that their faith can be refined. A little bit like gold is refined in fire. Christians' faith can be refined by these experiences of fire. Now, none of that is the shock in this passage, particularly. We've seen that theme all along in 1 Peter. Here's the shock. Peter says, when that happens, if you're a Christian and you're insulted, persecuted, abused, you should, verse 13, rejoice. Verse 12, he says, don't be surprised. Don't think something strange is happening to you. But rejoice, in verse 13. When God takes you through fire, rejoice. Now, I don't know how you react to that. Uh, a number of ways, I guess. If you're with us visiting and uh, maybe you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, this might sound very, very odd to you. Uh, rejoice because you're suffering. What kind of people do that? Uh, when people take pleasure in pain, we call them masochists or something worse and regard them as, to put it politely, emotionally unhealthy. So what is this and why would we, why would you want anything to do with a group of people that are supposed to rejoice in suffering? Good question. Maybe you're a Christian and uh, you're very aware of the kinds of sufferings that Christians can face around the world. I don't know how many here this morning uh, sometimes pick up or, or subscribe to the Barnabas Fund newsletter. The Barnabas Fund uh, aims to bring hope and aid to the persecuted church around the world. And I just looked at the, uh, the most recent newsletter. Here are just a few headlines. Uh, in northern Nigeria, hundreds of Christians killed thousands on the run after attacks by the, the Boko Haram extremists in that part of the country. In Mali, the military coup there has opened the floodgates, it seems, for persecution of Christians. All the church buildings in Gao and uh, Timbuktu have been destroyed. Many Christians killed or displaced in that country. In Kenya, uh, a grenade thrown into a church service killed five and uh, injured 30 more in the latest of a series of cross-border attacks. In Indonesia, 17 church buildings in the Aceh province have been sealed off by the authorities under pressure from Islamist groups there. In Syria, the city of Homs that we hear so much about in the news did have a population of 50 or 60,000 Christians amongst the general population. Now they estimate that less than a 1,000 of them are still there. They've fled. And that pattern is repeating across that country. If you're used to hearing these things and, and praying for the persecuted church across the world, I wonder how you think about the idea of rejoicing in suffering. I guess we often pray through these things because it upsets us. It feels like a bizarre alien idea to rejoice in persecution. And maybe your mind uh, flips to the UK as well, where uh, we're mostly, I guess, at the verbal insult stage, much like they were when 1 Peter was written. And uh, putting together that picture of global persecution and UK verbal persecution might leave you feeling uh, not at all rejoicing, but almost a sense of panic. Things... What are they doing? Are they spiraling out of control? I thought God was meant to be in control. What's he doing? Has he left his people? Uh, Is he doing anything all this? How can Peter say to rejoice in persecution? And I guess for a few this morning, these might be intensely personal issues. If you yourself uh, are able to speak firsthand about intense persecution of, of various kinds, 
And Peter says, when God takes you through fire like that, rejoice. Why? <laughs> that is what this passage is here to, uh, to tell us. Why? How, ca- how can we rejoice in persecution? Three brilliant reasons he gives us. One, glorious joy awaits you. Two, the Spirit rests on you. Three, God is refining you. Three reasons to rejoice when Christians, when you are persecuted for being a Christian. So let's take each of those in turn. First, rejoice because glorious joy awaits you. Verse 13, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If we suffer for Christ, then we're following in his footsteps. We're following uh, the example, the pattern that he set us. That's been a, a key theme of this letter. Jesus established the pattern for the normal Christian life. Suffering, then glory. Jesus is suffering, then his ascension to glory at the Father's side. So don't be surprised if following Christ looks the same as that. If the shape of your life looks a lot like his to some extent. Suffering now, glory later. Now, why should that seem strange to us in in a way if Jesus has modeled that for us and calls us to follow him as his disciples? It's a privilege to follow him, says Peter. It's to participate in his sufferings, in Peter's language. That doesn't mean we add or contribute anything to Jesus' death on the cross for our sins that won our forgiveness and our salvation. Only his death can do that. But we follow his example. We go where he went first. Now, I want you to look again at verse 13 and follow the joy through that verse. Look where it starts and look where it ends. But rejoice, so there's joy now, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. In other words, when Jesus returns and remakes the world with everything made perfect, Alongside that pattern of Jesus suffering now and going to glory later, Peter gives us a picture of rejoicing now and being overjoyed later. Rejoicing in suffering now and then being overjoyed with the glories that are to come. That word overjoyed, it's not sort of standard English, I suppose. Excessively joyed, it means. Uh, Joy beyond anything we can imagine is what is to come. Uh, the, The joy is turned up not just to 10, but to 11. Uh, The more we can rejoice in sufferings now, the greater the joy will be on that final day. I I drove our son Joel to to see his grandparents on Friday evening, and the rush hour traffic turned an hour and a half journey into three hours like it normally would on a Friday. And uh, for a boisterous two-year-old, sitting strapped into a car seat is not the most fun activity. So the potential for a grumpy journey was, was pretty high. But actually, he was brilliant. He, we had a great time. It was just him and me. We, we went up together. Tree was seeing a friend. And um, uh, he, uh, all the way we were talking about how brilliant it was going to see uh, be to see his grandparents, to, to chat to his grandma and his grandpa, to play with the dogs, to run around in the house and, and the garden and, and, and muck about with the enormous, insanely big Duplo set that they have at home. And Joel, he's been up to my parents enough times to know the pattern. You sit in a car seat for a bit, which is rubbish. And then it's glorious. You have a great time with grandma and grandpa. And so, because he knows that's coming, even on the journey, which is frankly rubbish for a two-year-old, 
he, he can be happy. He can rejoice in anticipation of that joy that's coming. Now, I reckon if a two-year-old can get that, we probably should be able to. Jesus has fixed the pattern, suffering now, glory later. That is the journey of the Christian life. You get to glory through suffering. Can we trust that pattern? Can we trust God to work through that trajectory in our lives, just as he did with Christ? Can you say to yourself, this present suffering is the way to glory? Christ has already traveled that way. And so have millions of other Christians before us. We're just treading that well-trodden path which ends in unimaginable joy. It's not strange. It's not a surprise. It's the well-worn path to glory. So rejoice, says Peter. Next time you're insulted, if you are, for believing in Jesus, remember the journey that you're on. Same journey as Christ. You know where he went. He went into heaven and into endless joy and We're going the same way if we're trusting in him. Rejoice not in our circumstances. Obviously, the the painful experiences of persecution aren't themselves something to celebrate. That would be mad. But when we see it as the route to joy, we can rejoice even now. That's the first reason to rejoice in the fire. Rejoice because glorious joy awaits you. Second, rejoice because the Spirit rests on you. Now, even before we look at the verses, that follows logically, doesn't it? If if the journey of suffering now, glory later, is the normal pattern of Christian life, then if you're on that journey, then you are the spirit-filled Christian. You're not lacking something because you're suffering now and anticipating that glory. And that's exactly uh, what Peter wants us to understand in verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ... You are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, the first half of that verse echoes the words of Jesus. I don't know if you remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Peter's echoing those words, saying, do you remember what Jesus said? This is normal discipleship, the normal pattern, the normal Christian life, which means... Persecution is proof of the Spirit's presence in your life. The standard experience of a Spirit-filled Christian includes facing insults. Now that feels slightly counterintuitive, doesn't it? I don't know what what you think of in your mind if you imagine uh, a Christian on whom the Spirit rests. Uh, Maybe you imagine a life of serene tranquility. Uh, freeing you from the troubles and hardships of this world, allowing you to feel untouched by things like persecution. Maybe it's a longing. Maybe you think, I'd love to experience that experience of what you think uh, a spirit-filled life would be, to be assured that he's present with me, to, to know that he's resting on me. What Christian doesn't want that, doesn't want that assurance? And if your experience is one of uh, suffering and of insult for being Christians, you might feel very alone, as if God has deserted you or perhaps never came to dwell with you by his spirit in the first place. You could question God's presence in your life if if you're in this fire. And perhaps in a a wider sense, when you uh, hear about the persecutions in the global church, 
you wonder, where, where is the presence of the Spirit? In Nigeria, in Syria, in those places. And as for the UK, where is God as the comedians ridicule Christians, as the, uh, the petitions and the, even the bishops make it less and less acceptable to live a Christian life in society? We read the latest story of an, an employee unable to wear a cross to work uh, or um, being sacked for refusing to compromise on their beliefs. And we wonder, where is God in all this? Has he deserted his church in this country? Has he withdrawn his spirit? And Peter turns that on its head in this verse. You're being insulted. Well, that's not proof of the Spirit's absence. That's proof of his presence. The Spirit-filled, glorious Christian life, this side of eternity, is not one that sails through life, barely touching the world, oblivious to insults and persecution. It goes through this fiery ordeal. It participates in Christ's sufferings, following that pattern, suffering now, glory later. So, again, rejoice. Rejoice because your future is glorious. Rejoice because the Spirit is with you. This fire of persecution can be evidence, not that God has deserted us, but that he is with us. Now, at this point, let me make the same aside that Peter makes at this point. In verse 15 of chapter 4, He says, uh, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. By the way, says Peter, this rejoicing only applies to suffering for being a Christian, for living a Christian life. It doesn't apply to suffering because you deserve it. That would not be evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. That might seem a rather obvious point. Being jailed for murder or theft is not persecution, it's just what you deserve. That's pretty clear, I think. Uh, but maybe we should hesitate to say it's always so obvious. Think of those massacres of Christians in northern Nigeria. Think of the survivors who fled, uh, I was reading, from 12 villages, uh, unable to return back to homes and farms that have been burned. Now think of them bereaved, homeless, uh, desperately hungry, desperately traumatized. How easy for them to murder in revenge. How easy for them to survive by stealing, just as their own belongings were taken from them. I read of Obed Dashan, who leads a denomination in Nigeria called the Church of Christ. Forty of their pastors have been killed in the last ten years. But Dashan continues to urge his people not to retaliate, not to murder, not to steal, no matter what is done to them, to keep honoring Christ by living good lives. And you know what is incredible? It seems to be mostly working. Not a single mosque in the area has been destroyed, apparently. There have been no coordinated revenge attacks, just one or two individuals that that have uh, gone off the handle. I think that is amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I think a testament to people who, despite everything, seem to know that God is with them. They seem to know that the Spirit rests on them, even in their horrific persecution. Now that's northern Nigeria. What about us? Nothing criminal should be any part of a Christian's response to the world around us. If you're 
passed over for promotion in your office because you're a Christian. Yes, that is persecution. But if then in your self-pity you respond to that by, I don't know, fiddling your expenses uh, and you get done for that, that is not persecution for being a Christian. That is something you deserve. That's just being a criminal. So don't do that. Or maybe Peter has us in his sights at the end of verse 15 uh, when he says, or even as a meddler. What's a meddler? Uh, well, I dug around uh, in terms of the original word. It means someone who's annoying, a pest, uh, someone who unnecessarily winds people up, uh, someone likely to be socially ostracized, not for doing good, but just because they deserve it, frankly. Um, and Peter says, don't kid yourself. Don't suffer for getting on people's nerves and call that persecution. The only offensive thing about Christians should be the gospel itself. If we're ostracized because we're obnoxious, then, well, that's that's our fault. Uh, if you speak about the gospel with friends or family or colleagues and get insulted for it, then that is suffering as a Christian. But if you were to do it in a self-righteous way that makes them feel disrespected and then get insulted for that, you're not suffering as a Christian, you're, you're just a meddler, says Peter. So if we're rejoicing because the Spirit rests on us, we won't react defensively and aggressively like a person insecure of our position, uncertain of our relationship with God, and and do something criminal or, or become a meddler. God is with us, especially in the fires of persecution. So rejoice and keep doing good. Final reason to rejoice. Rejoice because God is refining you Now remember the literal translation of verse 12. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that tests you. This is a refining fire of persecution that Peter is speaking of. And in verse 17, he describes it as a kind of judgment. It says in verse 17, "For It is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, that might sound very strange. In what sense does God judge his own family, the church, us, his people that trust in him? And in what sense is that happening now? If I suffer for Christ, is that God judging me? Well, yes, in Peter's language here, but don't be confused. Peter is drawing a contrast in these verses between two very different kinds of judgment. So uh, the first kind of judgment is what we've been talking about. It is the judgment for Christians, for God's family. There is a refining judgment which happens now. And part of that is these fires of persecution. But there is another kind of judgment which Peter contrasts with this refining judgment. That other kind of judgment in verse 17 is for those who reject God, who do not obey the gospel of God. There's a much worse judgment And we know from elsewhere in Scripture that that is final, everlasting punishment. But Peter doesn't spell that out here. He just asks the question, what do you think the outcome will be for those who reject God? He just leaves that hanging. Two judgments. Refining through judgment now for God's family or something much, much worse for his enemies. And he wants us to compare the two. The present refining judgment might look and feel terrible for a time. And it is terrible for a time. 
But we need to understand that God is refining his family, purifying them, purifying us perhaps by taking us through the fire. And it's not ultimately something to fear in a final sense. Unlike the unspeakable alternative, which is something to be dreaded and avoided at all costs. The question in verse 18 restates these two alternatives. If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, says Peter, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, Peter's not making a point about how hard it is for God to save sinners, although it is hard. It took Christ's death on the cross to save sinners. And he's not saying that we should be insecure about our salvation now, as if there's some difficulty still to overcome. Jesus died, we know from 1 Peter, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. That is done. The hardship for our salvation fell on Jesus, not on us. But there is still a hardship to be endured for Christians. That is Peter's point. God saves people, but in the process, he may bring them through all kinds of hardships to refine them. So the question is, that Peter's putting before us, if the righteous face hardships in the process of refinement, how much worse will it be for the ungodly and the sinner? Now that is a a deeply, deeply sobering thought. Two judgments, says Peter. You get one or the other. Be refined now by suffering as a Christian or experience an unimaginably worse judgment later. Gritty. What a a choice. It's a little bit like the hard words of a doctor who says to his patient, you've got to stop smoking and drinking. You've got to start taking up a healthy exercise life or uh, a healthy diet. It will be really hard to do that, but it will refine you, and you know what the alternative is. If you do not do these things, the alternative is unthinkable. Imagine a doctor saying that to you. That is what Peter is saying to us. Choose the painful but necessary path of refinement, the route to glory via suffering, rather than the unthinkable alternative. Many Christian martyrs over the centuries have understood this choice and taken this choice. One of the most famous uh, would be uh, the bishop of the second century, Bishop uh, Polycarp, who you might have come across. He uh, was 86 when he was martyred, killed for being a Christian, which meant that he'd lived a long time and knew the Apostle John when he was young, extraordinarily. Um, And his words to his accusers are recorded. He said to them, You threaten me with a fire which will burn for an hour and then go out. But you are ignorant of the fire of the the future judgment of God reserved for the everlasting torment of the ungodly. Bring on the beasts or the fire or whatever you choose. You shall not move me to deny Christ, my Lord and my Savior. Said Polycarp in the second century. Gosh, two fires. He knew which one he wanted to face. No doubt these verses had played a part in forming Polycarp's clarity about that. Now, maybe that makes sense to you. Maybe you think, okay, I can see that God could be refining me in the in the fire of persecution, but I, I really struggle to see that as a reason to rejoice. Well, Peter's not wanting to send us away with a heavy heart, 
and grim determination. Determination, yes, not grim determination. He wants us to rejoice in the fire. So look where he ends in verse 19. Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. As God refines you, remember that he is your faithful creator. I just look at those two words for a moment, faithful creator, and think about what they mean. He's faithful. He is utterly trustworthy. He will keep every promise that he has made to us, including the one that he's made to work in all things for the good of those who love him, including through our suffering. We can trust his good intentions as he takes us through the fire. You can trust his good intentions. He is faithful to you. But he's not just faithful. He is the creator. He made and sustains everything. He's in full control of the universe that he made, which means that your life and your destiny are in his hands securely as you go through the fire. As he works out everything in accordance with his will, including the suffering that we face. If you or I are are, are facing suffering for being a Christian, or if we do in the future, this is brilliant, brilliant news for us. Our faithful creator is refining us. He knows what he is doing. He holds us in his hands faithfully and securely as he brings us into and out of circumstances that he knows will be for our good. He loves you. You're his family. You can trust him as he refines you. So we can rejoice in the persecution uh, that we may face for all of these reasons. Glorious joy that awaits us, the spirit that rests on us, and the refinement of God as he brings us through it. And as as we finish, let me put it this way. God, as your loving father, can do for you what Tree and I can never do for Joel, our son. God can take you through times of necessary suffering and guarantee that they will work out for your good in the end. God can do that for you. He does that. One of the most agonizing things about being a parent is that you you can't do that. (laughs) You can try. Uh, You know that some suffering is necessary for growing up. If Joel never hurt himself on anything, he just wouldn't know how to avoid danger. If Joel never went into a social situation with other kids who played a little bit rough, he'd never know how to assess personalities and find his way through life socially. So what are you going to do, parents? Wrap our children in cotton wool, never let them spend time with anybody else. As they get a bit older, never let them go and play in the park, never let them go and spend the night with another kid. What are you going to do? There's risks. Sometimes suffering is necessary for growing up. We all know that, but the scary thing for a, a human parent is that you cannot guarantee safety. We're not God. We're not sovereign. We're not Joel's faithful creator. But God is Rejoice in this. God can do for you what we can never do for Joel. He can utterly, 100%, unfailingly guarantee that you will be kept safe. Even that you will grow and benefit from everything that happens to you in this life. It might be, it will sometimes be painful at the time. Very much so if we suffer for him. But we can trust his judgment as he refines us. Even in the fire especially in the fire, we can rejoice.
Let's pray. Father, these are hard words. None of us would want to suffer in any way. And many of us do suffer, and it is horrific. We thank you for these words of great comfort that you are our faithful creator. And we pray particularly for our brothers and sisters across the world who face the fires of persecution in ways that are beyond our our nightmares. We pray for them, that you would sustain them, help them to know these things, help them to know that even in the fire they have a glorious future, a spirit who rests with them and a God who can be trusted to refine them. And we pray for ourselves, Lord, in the smaller ways, the the verbal ways that we face persecution in, in our country and in our offices and families and homes. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to remember these things. And when when persecution comes, uh, not to duck how hard it feels, but to trust you, and therefore to be able to rejoice that you are such a good God who will bring us home to heaven, who is with us now, who can be trusted in all that you do in us and through us, even in suffering. Help us to look to you for Jesus' sake. Amen.